Well, someone or some things' reputation can be a very precious thing and sometimes it can be hard to keep it intact. Just ask the administrators of the National Rugby League, the NRL. Uh, Each year they run a multi-million dollar business, massive organisation involving massive amounts of money. Sponsorship deals are the key to the NRL survival and so they want to safeguard their reputation in order to keep the money flowing and to keep their game alive. But keeping their reputation intact can be tricky. It seems that every year there's several scandals involving players, there's party romps, drug busts, violence, and it all drags the reputation of the NRL through the mud because the lives of the players reflect on the game as a whole and each time the administrators have to go into damage control. Now, they've got measures to try and curb the unruly behaviour of some of their players. There's fines and suspensions and counselling. And I'm sure that they want what's best for the players. But there's also a bigger picture, the bigger picture of the game of a, as a whole at stake. And so they need to keep the safe, they need to safeguard their reputation in order to protect their game. Now, it's this sort of thing that's going on in our passage today. There's all sorts of things in Titus chapter 2 about how God's people are to live, and it is what's best for us, but there's also a bigger picture at stake. Not some piddly little football competition, but the reputation of the grace of God. Our lives reflect on the grace of God, and so by our lives we're to safeguard its reputation. And so we live in godliness. That's the essence of Titus chapter 2. Now the chapter is basically split into two halves. Uh, Verses 1 to 10, uh, Paul details some specifics of godliness. And then in verses 11 to 15, he spells out why we're to live that way. But throughout it all, Paul keeps reminding us of a bigger picture. That it's all about the reputation of the grace of God. And so before we have a look at the specifics of godliness, the first thing we need to do is to sort out why the grace of God has a reputation worth safeguarding. So first up, verse 5. In uh, verses 4 and 5, Paul's been dealing with how the younger women are to be godly. And then at the end of verse 5, he tells us why. Look at it there, the end of verse 5. So that... No one will malign the word of God. It's godliness for the sake of the word of God that no one will badmouth it. Similar thing down in verse 8. Here Paul's been talking to the younger men about their godliness and at the end of verse 8 he tells us why, end of verse 8, so that those who oppose you may be ashamed because they have nothing bad to say about us. You see, it's godliness for the sake of non-Christians, that they'd be ashamed about having nothing bad to say. And again, verse 10, uh, Paul spells out the godliness of slaves and he tells us again why they're meant to be like this at the end of verse 10, end of verse 10, so that in every way they will make the teaching about God our Saviour attractive. You see, it's godliness for the sake of non-Christians being attracted to the teaching of God our Saviour. In essence, Paul's telling us how to live for the sake of the reputation of the grace of God so that non-Christians won't badmouth it. Instead, they'll be drawn to it. 
And why do we want that? So that they'll be saved. Our godliness is to help people be saved, that they'll see that the grace of God is a good thing and want a piece of it. Have another look at the end of verse 10. End of verse 10. So that in every way they will make the teaching about God our Saviour attractive for the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. Make the teaching about God our Saviour attractive because... The grace of God saves people. Some shop owners are absolutely sure of the worth of their product. They're totally convinced that people will be better off if they have whatever it is they're selling. And so the shop owners work hard at convincing people to buy their stuff. They keep their shops clean, they dress smartly, they're pleasant to customers, they offer sales... And it's all because they're convinced that their product is worth having. Are you convinced that God's salvation is worth having? That people would genuinely be better off if they had it? That's Paul's point here. Make the teaching of God our Saviour attractive because the grace of God saves people. We're convinced, aren't we, that people need to be saved by the grace of God and so we're to safeguard its reputation so that people will be attracted to it. Now, what exactly does Paul mean by salvation? Uh, Is it really that special? When we hear of salvation, uh, we normally think of being saved from God's judgment, saved from hell, saved from the penalty of sin. And that's certainly on view in the coming verses, so yes, it is special. But Paul has a wider understanding of salvation here. He's also got in view being saved from the life of sin, saved from living in wickedness, saved from the power of sin. Have another look at verse 11. I'm going to read through to verse 14. And I want to see see if you can spot both aspects of salvation. Saved from the power of sin, from wickedness, as well as saved from the penalty of sin, judgment. So verse 11. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us, to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. Do you spot both sides of the salvation coin? The first one's there in verse 13, where Paul refers to us uh, being saved from the penalty of sin when he says we're waiting for the glorious appearing of our great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ. We're waiting for the day when Christ is undeniably revealed as the Lord of all. He is coming in frightening authority to judge the sins of the world. He is bringing his penalty for sin, and yet we're waiting for this blessed hope because he's our great God and saviour. He's made us ready for that day by already dying for our sins and dealing with our penalty. We're waiting for eternal life in the new creation where Christ is revealed because we've already been saved from the penalty of sin. It's as if you were standing in the middle of a road 
completely unaware of the bus that's bearing down on you. Tragedy is about to strike when suddenly someone moves you out of the way and saves you from certain death. The Lord Jesus came and moved you out of the way, took your place and died on a cross for you to save you from judgment and hell. The grace of God brings salvation of an eternal kind and that is a reputation worth safeguarding. We want people, don't we, to be saved from the penalty of sin. But we've been saved from more than just hell. In Christ, we've also been saved from the power of sin. Do you see that in verse 14? Christ gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. You see, redeemed from all wickedness. In other words, saved from the power of sin, saved from continuing in rebellion against God. Instead, we're eager to do what is good. You see, we don't have to keep living destructive patterns of life that cause harm to ourselves and the people around us. We don't have to wallow in the muck of a life lived in opposition to God. There's a better way to live. There's someone I know who's experienced this quite dramatically. Uh, Before they became a Christian, they were constantly fighting with their parents. They were frustrated. They were angry. They were always in conflict. And the household was always on edge. And you can imagine how tiring and wearying that can be. My friend was busy fighting to always get their own way and to do their own thing. And they were miserable. Nobody was winning. Fights were always around the corner. Mum and Dad didn't know what to do. They were worried, upset and unsure and it was all the result of my friend's selfish sinfulness. Then one day my friend became a Christian. They put their trust in Jesus to save them and quickly their life turned around. Instead of living in selfishness and conflict, they began to genuinely love in action. There was peace harmony, fun. The parents were no longer worried or upset or unsure. My friend's newfound godliness brought blessing, true goodness. You see, in Christ, we've been woken out of the stupor of living in wickedness to be brought into the fresh liberty of living for God, saved from the power of sin, as well as being saved from the penalty of sin. Now, are you convinced that other people need God's salvation? That we should make the teaching of God our Saviour attractive, that the grace of God has a reputation worth safeguarding? I hope so. God's salvation is priceless. And so what are you going to do to attract people to the teaching of God our Saviour? And this brings us to verses 1 to 10. Because here Paul spells out for us what lives we're to lead in order to safeguard the reputation of the grace of God. We do it by living in godliness, living God's way, living for the one who died to redeem us for himself. So in verses 1 to 10, Paul puts five groups of people under the microscope. And there's lots in there about the godliness of the young and the old, men and women, but it all boils down to everyone basically being self-controlled. Now, self-control is to do with being sensible, stopping yourself from sin, being disciplined in your actions. 
And whether you're young or old, man or woman, we safeguard the reputation of the grace of God by being self-control. It's that important. So the first group that Paul slides under his microscope is the older men. So let's have a look at their self-control. Verse 1. You must teach what is in accord with sound doctrine. Teach the older men to be temperate, worthy of respect, self-controlled, and sound in faith, in love, and in endurance. So the lives of the older Christian men amongst us are to be sensible and dignified. Say no to becoming a grumpy old man. Instead, be self-controlled. Men worthy of respect. Early church should have reason to esteem you, to be want to be like you. And I think that in early church we're blessed, aren't we, to have such older men amongst us. Older men in the Lord who have a certain gravitas, a, a certain authority and weightiness about them because of their seniority and their self-control. And it's similar for the older women. Have a look at verse 3. Likewise, teach the older women to be reverent in the way they live, not to be slanderers or addicted to much wine, but to teach what is good. So older women, you too are to be self-controlled. Say no to gossip and slander and bite your tongue instead. Say no to whittling away your remaining years with alcohol. God has saved you out of such bitterness and futility to be reverent in the way you live. Reverent before God, such that in the end, we revere you. And being with older women like this is just lovely. To spend time with an older Christian lady who has spent her years cultivating godliness in reverence. And again, I think early church is blessed to have such older, reverent women amongst us. Women who revere God, women we can revere. Which is a good thing because they've got a job to do. They have to train the younger women in godly living. Let's have a look at verse 4. Then they can train the younger women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled and pure, to be busy at home, to be kind and to be subject to their husbands so that no one will malign the word of God. Now, the first thing to notice here is that Paul obviously has younger married women in mind in this verse. Now, this is not to say that younger single women are unimportant. It's just that here he's got younger married women in focus. And the essence of how you're to live is that you're to be self-controlled in your home life loving your husbands and loving your children, being busy at home and subject to your husbands, not pursuing your own interests but in self-control, pursuing the interests of your family and not their worldly interests but their godly interests, investing in their Christian faith and in their knowledge of God and helping your family to be godly. It's a picture in this verse of younger women being Family focused. And I want you to note just what a terrific picture it is. It's a picture of a marriage where the husband and wife aren't fighting to be in charge. 
a mum who's actively looking out for her children's best interests as opposed to being so caught up in her own life that her kids just get the crumbs. This is a wife and a mum you want. My mum is a beautiful woman. She's a strong woman, strong of thought, strong of will. She's a capable and intelligent woman. But she didn't try and push dad around. There was uniform agreement between my mum and dad. They were working together as mum trusted dad to ultimately look after the family. And mum was always there for us kids. She loved us kids. She loved her husband. My mum's a beautiful woman. And it's because she lived out Titus too. Now, if you are a younger married woman here, there might be some things that you find a bit hard to deal with. Being subject to your husband, maybe. Though I wonder whether being busy at home is actually more of a clangor these days. Being family focused, such that if there's things taking you away from your family, then maybe you need to let it go. So, for example, being busy at home, does that mean you don't go out to work? It's worth thinking through, isn't it? Because the wonderful life of godliness that God has called you to is to be self-controlled at home, loving your husband and your children, being busy at home. And remember, it's not for your sakes. Not Sorry, not just for your sakes. At the end of verse 5, Paul says, you're to live like this so that no one will malign the word of God. It's for the sake of the reputation of the grace of God. So younger women, you've got lots of detail spread out for you in verses 4 and 5. Uh, but when it comes to the younger men, uh, Paul realises the smallness of our brains. And uh, he doesn't rattle off a whole stack of things. He just limits it to just one thing, boils it down to self-control. Verse 6 simply reads, similarly, encourage the young men to be self-controlled. That's it. Young men, be self-controlled. With our sexuality, where to be? Self-controlled. Saying no to sleeping around. Saying no to treating women as objects for our lusts. With our strength, where to be self-controlled. Saying no to fighting and aggressively and violently wanting to get our own way. With our tempers, where to be self-controlled. Saying no to flying off the handle when things don't go our way. With our wives, if we're married, we're to be self-controlled. Say no to abusing your position of headship. Say no to always insisting on your own way because Christian marriage is where the husband treats his wife like a princess and the wife lets him. And so young men, be self-controlled. Instead of destroying our lives and spiralling out of control and giving in to our desires and being reckless and wild and riding roughshod over women and losing our lives to addictions, God calls on his young men to be self-controlled. And again, remember, it's not just for your own sakes. It's not just good for you. End of verse 8, you're to be like this so that those who oppose us will have nothing bad to say about us. It's for the sake of the reputation of the grace of God. Now, if we just take a step back a bit for a moment, I think we're meant to notice just how good living like this would be. I mean, imagine a community where the older men are worthy of respect. 
The older women are reverent. The younger women love and are kind. The younger men are self-controlled. How good would that be? Instead of people living in selfishness and bitterness and laziness and wickedness, Christ has redeemed us out of such hopeless lives into the richness of godliness, lives of self-control. And not only that, but remember, Christ has saved us from the penalty against such living. By the grace of God in the death of Christ, God has saved us from judgment and hell, saved us from the penalty of sin. And so this morning, the question for us is, are we convinced that God's salvation is worth having, that others would be better off if they had it? Because if you are, then make the teaching of the grace of God attractive because it saves people. Now, I could just hop up here and say, now look, be godly, be self-controlled because God says so. And that would be right because plain and simple as we read it here in Titus 2, we read it, he speaks, we do. But there's more to godliness than just mere obedience. Behind it all is God and the salvation that he has in store for his people. And so older men live lives worthy of respect. Older women be reverent in the way you live. Younger women love your families. Younger men, be self-controlled for the sake of the reputation of the grace of God, for the sake of the salvation of the people that are around us. Let's be taught by the grace of God to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives while we wait for the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, please impress upon our hearts and our minds just what a wonderful thing it is to be saved by you, saved from the penalty of sin, saved from the power of sin, that we might be sure of our place in your new creation, that as we wait we can live self-controlled, upright and godly lives. Father, thank you for your incredible salvation and the richness of it all. Father, please convince us of everyone's need to be saved by you like this, that we might live self-controlled, upright and godly lives, making the teaching about you attractive, that more and more people will want to to hear of Jesus and be saved by him. Please do that for our friends and our family. Even in two weeks' time, Father, with our guest Sunday, please save our friends and our family. Bring them along that they might hear, that they might see our lives and know that the salvation that you offer is rich and great. Father, for the glory of your name, may we live self-controlled lives. Through Jesus our Lord. Amen.